I mean, the CDC does not have rulemaking authority delegated by Congress, yet the CDC did, you know, the eviction moratorium, the federal mask mandate, it was complete abuse, and I, unless there's a real change, I'm afraid it's just going to happen again. Today I sit down with Janine Younes, litigation counsel for the new Civil Liberties Alliance. She's led major cases against vaccine mandates and government-induced censorship on social media platforms. You have two of the top epidemiologists in the world talking about their area of expertise, and it doesn't fit with the narrative of the Biden administration. With, with the governor. With, with the governor, the governor. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That video was taken down. I mean, this is crazy. You have this is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Janine Younes, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. There have been many things that have happened over the last few years that have kind, kind of brought you to this place. Um, so, but for, just for starters, right? Tell me what you do now, why uh, it might be relevant to Dr. Fauci announcing his resignation. Well, right now I litigate cases against the government. So um, we really look at where the government is overreaching and especially where administrative agencies are concerned. NCLA, the new Civil Liberties Alliance, is focused on administrative overreach. and. We believe that a lot of the constitutional violations that take place to do today have to do with uh, agencies sort of usurping power that they shouldn't have. So I've done a lot of vaccine mandate litigation, uh, primarily on behalf of employees of universities who don't want to get the vaccine. And then I've also I'm also doing some cases about uh, uh, government sponsored or government induced censorship of uh, people on social media platforms. Okay, and so um, so, what's your reaction to Dr. Fauci announcing his resignation? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I am not. I am. I really do not like Anthony Fauci. I think he's been one of the most destructive forces in this country. Um, I'm afraid he'll just be replaced by somebody worse, which has seemed to be the trend. Although I don't know if that's possible. So. And, you know, it's sort of upsetting that he's probably going to get away with what he's done and just go into a cushy retirement or some other, you know, maybe go work for uh, Pfizer or something and uh, make plenty of money. So it's, you know, I'm glad he won't be there anymore. But on the other hand, I don't think that he's going to get uh, get the consequences that he deserves. OK, so, you know. Dr. Fauci has been accused of all sorts of things, right? But you have some specific things in mind when you say um, you're not happy with them. So why don't you explain that to me? Of course, it's connected yeah. with the litigation that you do and so forth. Yeah. Well, there are so many things. I mean, first of all, that he pushed lockdowns, uh, mask mandates, vaccine mandates on uh, very bad evidence, that he refused to take into the account the harms that they you know, have done to the American people. In fact, he said yesterday that lockdowns didn't harm anyone. But in retrospect, and doctor, did do you regret we... that it went too far? Whatever your original intentions were, and it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback here, but that it went too far, that particularly for kids uh, who, who couldn't go to school except remotely, that it's forever damaged right. them. Well, I don't think it's forever irreparably damaged anyone. When, you know, kids are uh, suffering tremendously, socially, educationally, um, deaths are up among young people, about 40 percent. Um, and then Fauci has really been responsible for a lot of the censorship that's taking place on social media. So a lot of people aren't aware that the, the federal government is really involved in this censorship. They think that the tech companies are acting on their own when they suspend people or otherwise censor them for spreading so-called misinformation about COVID, but also other things. Um, Anthony Fauci and a number of other officials in the Biden administration are really behind this. 
so we, why don't we jump into this lawsuit actually that you just joined this lawsuit with uh, Louisiana AG Landry and Missouri AG Schmidt. Why don't you tell me about that? Yeah, um, so it's, uh, well, I'll, I'll start with, with the earlier lawsuit actually. So I had filed a lawsuit in Ohio in March and on behalf of three Twitter users, some people may be familiar with, uh, Mark Cinghizi, who's a cognitive theoretical scientist, Michael Sanger, who's a lawyer, and Daniel Coatson, who was a lawyer um, and is now a stay-at-home dad. They had all been highly critical of the government, um, COVID policies, government-induced COVID policies since the beginning. But they had not been censored or suspended or anything on Twitter um, until the Biden administration took over. And more noticeably, once the Biden administration began a public campaign where it was threatening tech companies with uh, regulation or other legal consequences, they've even talked about criminal liability, which is somewhat absurd, <laughs> um, if they don't censor people for spreading COVID misinformation. Now, COVID misinformation, this is just a term that's used, it's kind of insidious. It's used to sort of discredit points of view that differ from those of the administration or those of the government. And so, you know, they've said things like masks don't work, vaccines don't stop transmission, lockdowns do more harm than good, things that are now, you know, the scientific consensus. Um, but so they were all suspended and it's our, it was our contention that this was at the behest of the Biden administration. Unfortunately, that lawsuit was kicked out. The judge basically said that we didn't have enough evidence that our plaintiffs were censored because of the government, which I think is the totally wrong analysis for a number of reasons. But some good came out of it, which is uh, the attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana were um, considering bringing a similar lawsuit Oh, well, yeah. and let, let me just jump in. What was the evidence that you presented? You said you think the analysis was wrong, yeah. but what was the right now? Obviously, there's a lot more evidence, especially yeah. with this with these new lawsuits. But what evidence did you have then? Yeah. Right, at that time, what we had was a lot of public statements where um, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, then uh, spokesperson for Biden, Jennifer Psaki, uh, we're going out in public and saying these tech companies are killing people by not censoring them. Uh, if they don't do more, they're going to face legal consequences. Um, we're, we're working with them. We're flagging posts that they should be censoring. Now, when the government gets involved in telling a private company what to do, that is no longer a private company's action. That's state action. And uh, that implicates the First Amendment. So, you know, the argument had been, well, these, the tech companies are censoring people on their own. It's not a First Amendment violation. But we know now that it is. So part of the problem was when you file a lawsuit like this, uh, you're supposed to be able to get to discovery. You're supposed to be able to get documents from the government um, to corroborate what we suspect to be going on based on these public statements. But when the judge throws it out prematurely at this early stage, we can't get there. So it, you're in a catch-22, basically. No, and this is really fascinating, except that, you know, what you just said, right? I mean, this, it's, these are very public, extremely transparent statements, yeah. um, kind of telling these companies what they should do, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that, this, is, this is your contention, I guess. Exactly. And this is all, you know, this is really new territory. It's really novel because of the nature of social media. We've just never been here before. So this is all going to, whatever happens, um, and I hope it's good, but I, this is all going to create sort of new law. Um, if in the 1950s, the government had gone around saying the New York Times can't print X, Y, and Z, or they're going to face legal consequences, that would have been recognized widely as a First Amendment violation. I have no doubt. So, uh, you know, and a lot of this is just political. You, if you draw a judge who, um, you know, uh, thinks that misinformation is killing people, then you might not have the outcome that you want. And then there's also this whole kind of realm of uh, uh, what, 
you know, misinformation and disinformation means. I, I, I'm going to jump to the yeah. Missouri uh, and uh, Louisiana lawsuit in a moment, but, um, you know, you, you have to deal with this as well, right? To kind of defining these terms. Right. It's really insidious. It's sort of a you know way to get rid of people and ideas without having to engage with them. And the problem is, you know, some people are saying some things that are really a bit out there and I don't think are true, like the vaccines have microchips. But where do you draw the line? That's the issue. And um, once you have the government getting involved in deciding what's true and what's not, uh, you know, you run into some real problems. And I think the framers, framers of the Constitution, the uh, founders of our country understood that part of the price you pay to live in a free society is that sometimes people will say things that are not true. Sometimes people will even act on that false information and it'll, it'll have bad consequences. But it's far worse than the gov when the government is deciding who gets to be heard and who's silenced. So, yeah, I noticed, you know, at the top of your Twitter, you have this uh, quote, if the freedom <laughs> of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I believe that was a George Washington quote, although I can't remember exactly when he said it at this, <laughs> at this moment. But I think it's really true. I mean, uh, freedom of speech is fundamental in a free society. You can't have, if people don't know that um, what's going on, if people can't openly debate ideas and policies and, and the science, then you don't live in a free society anymore. Well, so let's jump to this uh, to this lawsuit that you've joined now with this uh, Louisiana AG yeah. and Andrew and the Missouri AG. So, so tell me about it. So it's very similar to the Ohio one, but it's broader. Uh, so this lawsuit alleges um, that the government is censoring misinformation of various kinds, not just COVID. It's uh, about election, so-called misinformation, the Hunter Biden laptop story, um, even goes into abortion and climate change. The plaintiffs that we're representing uh, who joined the lawsuit are Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kuhldorf, two of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, and then um, Aaron Cariotti, who was a professor at UC Irvine before he got fired for not getting the vaccine. And he brought a lawsuit that uh, gained him some notoriety. And then another, a woman named Jill Hines, who runs an organization called Health Freedom Louisiana. Hmm. So we're, we're really, we're alleging that their First Amendment rights were violated um, by the government through the censorship on social media. And for instance, um, Bhattacharya and Kuhldorf had, their accounts have been censored on numerous occasions. They had videos taken down from YouTube. They were having a, um, a roundtable discussion with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, about the harms of masking children. That video was taken down. I mean, this is crazy. You have two of the top epidemiologists in the world talking about their area of expertise and it doesn't fit with the narrative of the Biden administration. With, with the governor. With, with the, gover the governor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we also have Francis Collins of the NIH and Anthony Fauci, who presumably everyone knows, had made public statements right after they wrote the Great Barrington Declaration saying the Great Barrington Declaration, for people who don't know, was uh, it was sort of a, a short document saying that the harms of lockdowns were greater than the benefits and um, we should end them immediately. It was written in about October of 2020. So Fauci and Collins immediately jumped on it, called them a danger to society, and I believe are behind quite a bit of you know the censorship that that happened to them. There were actually you know, whistleblower documents that kind of you know buttress this right. this lawsuit now. Yeah, we have a lot more evidence than we did when 
that we, than we did when I filed the lawsuit in March. So in addition to this, these public statements, uh, emails came out from DHS through a whistleblower that showed that the uh, DHS had formed this disinformation governance board, that it was clearly uh, working with social media companies. They make it look like they're working with them, but given the inherent power dynamic and these threats, this, there's a level of coercion that uh, I think sort of eviscerates the argument that this is voluntary, this is what the companies want to do. And that's what defenders of these policies are saying. The social media companies just, they want to accomplish the government's aim. They're also lefties, they like the Biden administration, they're allowed to work together to do this. I don't know that I buy that from a First Amendment perspective, but but I don't even think that's true. I think it's extremely coercive. And then, you know, that's a, that is a stronger First Amendment case. Fascinating. Well, okay, and so now we also, at Dr. Anthony Fauci has announced his resignation. Uh, this is around the time also when there's this new CDC guidance, which is, you know, quite, uh, I guess, quite different from the previous guidance would yeah. be the way to put it. So how, what is your reaction to this, to the new guidance? It's <laughs> a good question. So the new guidance, I mean, basically one of the most astonishing things is it says vaccinated and unvaccinated people should be treated the same. There's no reason to treat them differently. They're sort of, it's, they seem to be actually embracing the focus protection, which is what the Great Barrington Declaration advocated, saying that we should protect the vulnerable and everybody else should go on with their lives. Now, of course, what they would say is, well, things have changed uh, with the vaccines and the virus becoming less, you know, virulent. But I think, I don't think that's true. I think, you know, they, it's just clear that none of these tactics were working. And so now there's, you know, they're coming around to the position they should have seen two years ago before they did so much damage. Um, the interesting thing about this is a number of uh, universities, especially universities for the most part, are still continuing, continuing with vaccine mandates. And their fallback has been, you know, when they've gone into court, well, the CDC recommends everyone get the vaccine. Um, and judges have said, well, we can't call that irrational because there, there's a sort of something called a rational basis test. We can't call it irrational to rely on CDC guidance. So now if people bring lawsuits, it's going to be a bit different because the CDC isn't recommending uh, this anymore. Well, okay, so that's really interesting. There's this, the other, and something else that came out with the CDC guidelines was this acknowledgement of the existence of natural immunity right. of, you know, prior infection to COVID conferring value in dealing with the disease, so to right. speak, right? And so this was at best, at best ignored, at worst, you know, called a conspiracy theory for quite a number of years. Yeah. Um, so how does that impact your lawsuits? Well, actually, all of my lawsuits have been on behalf of people with natural immunity. So um, it's it. Well, I want to say it's good for them. It will be a question whether the courts are willing to look at the new science. So what they may say, and this actually happened in a case I had against MSU in Michigan, the judge said, you know, if you had filed this lawsuit, because it went on for some time, so we had filed the lawsuit in July of 2021. He ended up uh, ruling on the motion to dismiss and dismissing the case in February of 22. And he said in a footnote, if I was looking at the science today, I might find differently, but I have to look at it in July of 2021 because that's when MSU formulated their mandate, and then it was rational at that time. So we are actually, as part of our appeal, is saying that's not the right way to look at it. You should be looking at, you, you know, you don't have to be stuck in the time we brought the lawsuit. You can actually look at the evolving science. So that'll be a question. Um, you know, if, of course, the science all along showed that natural immunity was, <laughs> was better than the vaccines, frankly. But 
the CDC had been obfuscating that science. So now that the CDC has come out and said this, that that makes the case much stronger. Okay. So you so I, I guess you've already kind of answered my question. You're appealing this original case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're appealing to the Sixth Circuit. And we're actually sort of finishing up the brief briefing, so it should be heard relatively soon. So you weren't always doing this kind of litigation. In fact, you were doing something completely different I was. in the legal sphere. So yeah. you were you were a public defender. Yeah. Um so well Tell me a bit about yourself. You know, how did you end up becoming a public defender in the first place? Then we can talk about how things changed for you. Yeah, well, I had uh, sort of always wanted to. I went to law school to be a public defender. I wanted to, you know, I thought that the most powerless people in our society are those charged or convicted of crimes facing the power of the government. They often don't get a fair shake. Um, and uh, I was very interested in some of the inequities in the system, the fact that, you know, minorities, especially black people in New York, are some prosecuted so much more, go to prison so much more, face longer sentences. So I really wanted to help uh, represent those people. And so that's where I was. I worked for nine years as a public defender uh, in New York. Why the change? Um, what, what happened? <laughs> well, <Yeah>. COVID. <laughs> so when COVID happened, I mean, I was, as you might imagine, a public defender in New York. I was surrounded by people on the far left, so radical left, I would say. And I'd, I had always had some differences of opinion. I considered myself on the left, um, maybe almost as a default, because that's the people I was around. I grew up in Ithaca, New York, which is like the most hippie place you can imagine. Um, but I had I had stronger, you know, free speech ideas. Um, so I got in some debates or arguments, sometimes turned into arguments <laughs> about that. Um, I had I differed from a lot of the people around me on trans issues. Uh, for instance, I did not believe that trans women should be playing women's sports. Um, I did not believe that we should be performing gender reassignment surgery on children. So so since about 2015, I had sort of had some big differences with the left, but mm. still generally considered myself a leftist. And then when COVID happened, I completely disagreed with everyone around me. I was like, the government cannot tell people they can't leave their homes, they can't run their businesses, they can't send their kids to school. This is completely insane. Uh, they have to wear a piece of cloth on their face <laughs> for an indefinite amount of time. Um, and I didn't understand why nobody around me saw the problem. Uh, so I started doing quite a bit of research on mine. I didn't have anything to do because <laughs> I was locked down. Everything was shut down. You couldn't go out. Um, I'm a pretty social person. So like, and I don't have kids. So my life revolves around, uh, you know, going to restaurants and, you know, going to bars at night. Uh, and all of a sudden I didn't have that to do. <laughs> so I just started doing a lot of research. I looked into the history of pandemics, the fact that people, you know, historically had realized that lockdowns were not an effective means of quelling a virus that had already spread this widely, uh, especially one that's contagious. Um, I stumbled across Martin Kuhldorf, Jay Bhattacharya, Jeffrey Tucker, Alex Perrins, and some of the big uh, anti-lockdown voices and following them. And I just found their work very convincing. And, you know, I read the stuff on the other side, too. I And I checked myself a lot. I thought, well, maybe I'm crazy since 99% of the people around me uh, disagree. Maybe it's me who's crazy. But at every turn, I just realized that they were wrong. Um, so I began to write and speak out a little bit. Uh, the American Institute for Economic Research published some of my articles. Um, I was there for the Great Barrington Declaration, so I sort of got to witness that. Um, and I learned that a lot of my colleagues were saying I should be fired and what I was doing was horrible. I didn't really want to go back to that environment. And then at the same time, I really wanted to spend my time fighting this cause, fighting this government overreach and fighting for 
freedom, really, as, <laughs> as cliche as it sounds. So um, I just saw this as the most important topic of our time. So I was told, um, actually, Jeffrey Tucker at um, AIER told me about the new Civil Liberties Alliance. I looked them up. I thought, wow, they're doing amazing. I they were at the time fighting business closures. Um, and so I applied, I got the job, um, moved to DC. And then by then it was April of 21. So lockdowns were kind of a thing of the past and vaccine mandates were the new thing. <laughs> so I started uh, with those. So you were kind of canceled? How, yeah. you know, so because you, you, you chose to leave, but you chose to leave under some duress as well as that yeah, I would say so. I mean, I was certainly canceled by my friends. Uh, I don't talk to any of them anymore. And I had a couple, the summer of 2020, I had a couple of um, confrontations. And it would start with me just saying something sort of timidly. They'd be talking about how bad it was that any someone had a party. We'd all go to uh, Prospect Park. I lived in Brooklyn and sit like six feet apart on picnic blankets. And uh, they'd be like, oh, can you believe someone had a house party? It's just unbelievable. And I'd sort of say timidly, you know, you know, <laughs> there are some scientists who actually think that younger people should just be going out and living their lives. And I was met with such um, hostility and a ref complete lack of interest in the ideas. You know, we're talking about something that's more or less unprecedented, is hugely important in terms of the implications it has. And there's a total shutdown of debate. You can't even think about it. You can't discuss it. And that was a really big red flag to me, too. You're just saying this is something I've been thinking about actually the last few days. Just just the idea that you might be thinking these weird errant thoughts was a problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and this strange conformity and this labeling of people as you're a bad person for even contemplating whether this is the best way to go about things. And I, um, you know, I focused very heavily, although I do have strong views about the civil liberties aspect, as I mentioned, um, I focused a lot on the harms to the most vulnerable people, uh, not physically vulnerable to COVID, but like children, people in developing countries, the working class, who I saw as really harmed by these policies. I mean, children from poor families, for instance, they don't have a laptop per kid. You might, they might live five of them in a bedroom. Shutting down schools is devastating for them and their education. Uh, we had numbers from Oxfam saying that uh, 130 million additional people uh, would face starvation level levels of hunger because of lockdowns, because supply chain disruptions worldwide. Um, the people who rely on, you know, restaurants running for their paychecks, uh, who aren't, you know, the laptop Zoom class who just get to sit at home and get their entire paycheck, you know, and go, maybe go to Hawaii while they're doing it. These are the people who are really harmed. And because I thought I could reach the left with that. And I was really surprised that they did not care. And it was very telling to me, too. This has been just something that's really disturbing and fascinating to me you know obviously people living in this locked down way you know themselves that had to be you know met, created through society changing itself quite radically right and then there's a whole bunch of people who just couldn't live that way it's kind of obvious yeah. right and those people are left on the margins yeah and so how did people respond when you talked about these sorts of things um you know they didn't really respond in any real way. It was, uh, again, immediately shutting down debate. Um, people are dying of COVID. You know, how can you even how can you even talk about it? Uh, if you really want to talk about the harms to minorities, it's COVID. You know, <laughs> the black people are dying at far higher rates than than white people. So it's just deflecting from the issues. Um, and uh, that was really what I saw. And what was your 
you know, reaction, I guess, to, to this? You just, gave, you just gave up after a while and focused on your work? or Yeah, I sort of gave up. I stopped wanting to hang out with him. I mean, honestly, you know, the friendships ended <laughs> and I tend to blame them. But also, I didn't really want to be around them, I have to admit. And I saw that a lot of these people who pretend so much to care about you know, the poor, the working class people in other countries um, really don't. They, I think a lot of what motivated some of them, frankly, is that they enjoyed sitting at home. They, you know, they suddenly don't have responsibilities. They don't have to go to work from nine to five. Um, they can go work from San Francisco or the Bahamas or whatever. And a lot of them over time, I saw that's what they were doing. Oh, you're so scared of COVID, but you're traveling to Hawaii. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. So I saw, I think I saw a lot of people who, for who they were, and it uh, sort of turned me off. So, you know, based on this quote from George Washington uh, earlier, you're, would you call yourself a free speech absolutist? Um, you know, that's a good question. I am not 100% sure. I'm not, uh, I'm not certain where I stand on threats and uh, the like. And there are, um, sometimes it goes far enough, I think perhaps the law should get involved. For I would, I would cite uh, someone like Alex Jones as an example where he really tormented the parents of Sandy Hook um, victims. And you know, by saying it was a fraud and he didn't directly do anything, but a lot of his fans were, uh, really drove these parents out of their home. And these are the people who suffered a horrible tragedy. And he went after them relentlessly, just with complete lies. Um, so something like that, I, that might be where I think the law could begin to get involved, but other, other than something pretty much that extreme. Um, and then, you know, of course, should somebody be able to go on social media and say, kill um, John Smith? Um, that, that probably is another point, point at which the law would get involved. But other than that, I'm pretty much an absolutist. I mean, this is kind of a, I guess, theoretical discussion. I, I, I've been thinking about exactly these same sorts of questions. Yeah. Right. Cause I've been, you know, I suppose radicalized towards the, the side of free speech absolutism. People say, well, so what is Holocaust denial? Okay. Um, you know, like there's the, and these, these are important things to yeah. me, right? But I, I see whenever we start creating these caveats, I see them being taken advantage of as they have been. Yes. Right. And and that's my concern. That's true. And right. Like the so that to play devil's advocate to what I just said, I mean, the people on the other side would say, well, if you say that the vaccines don't work, you are effectively killing people. So that's just as bad as saying, go kill John Smith. Um, I mean, I would argue that you can carve out a pretty narrow exception, direct threats. If you are talking about physically harming someone directly and encouraging people to do that in a specific person um, or group, maybe, that would fall into this. But anything else, I mean, once you start getting into, well, this could indirectly harm somebody because they might believe it and they might not get the vaccine. No, that's, a, <laughs> that's protected speech. Why do you think you thought so differently from so many different people? I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question, and I've thought a lot about it. I, uh, I did. I probably my upbringing. Um, my mother was very, um, a very free thinker and had a strong libertarian streak, even though she tended sort of towards progressive points of view on many things. She did always have a, a libertarian streak. Um, my father 
grew up in the West Bank, um, immigrated to the United States in his late 20s, um, had really lived in the Middle East and under various repressive regimes in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, as well as the West Bank. And uh, I, I heard his stories, you know, and I understand what life is like when the government uh, has so much power. And I, you know, uh, I don't understand why people object to, the, to a government saying women have to wear headscarves but think it's okay for the government to tell people they have to wear masks. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> so I think I saw a lot of parallels. And, and you, you know, you realize if you've seen a repressive society, you understand how important it is to live in a free society. This is something that, you know, of course, is the subject will be the subject of much uh, uh, academic work in the future. But so many people really had this very, very strong thought, which, as we've been discussing, didn't really make a ton of sense to the point of, you know, discriminating against their friends and families and so forth. And what, how do you think that happened? Do you have any sense? Well, there was, uh, I mean, I would say it came from the top down. There was, a, I would say, a campaign early on, and I don't know exactly who I would blame. The New York Times and certainly media like that, uh, that sort of took the stance that if you questioned things, if you questioned the lockdowns, you were a bad person. Um, that, you know, and for instance, Trump, who had sort of, and I, he was not particularly anti-lockdown, but he sort of waffled early on. He objected to masks. He clearly didn't want to wear one. So he was so reviled by people in the pro progressive circles that I think a lot of it was, well, whatever Trump says is obviously wrong. And if you don't like lockdowns, well, you're like Trump. <laughs> Just this very simplistic, uh, you know, narrow thinking. And so I think that had something to do with why this came, became so politicized and why it became a moral thing to question. It, it was sort of um, a moralization of scientific questions or policy questions, which was very odd to me. For instance, it very quickly, the question of natural immunity, if you believed in natural immunity, it was like a moral question. And it's, mm. it's not, it's a scientific question. <laughs> um, whether masks work, again, was a scientific question, but it, but once for some reason this became a symbol of allegiance to the Democratic Party, uh, you were a morally bad person if you didn't want to wear a mask. Um, very strange. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of these, um, you call it um, kind of responses to, to, for example, vaccine mandates, right? People will say like, traditionally, with uh, non-genetic vaccines pre-COVID, yeah. there were expectations that people be vaccinated, for example, to travel to certain places, to go to school. Um, of course, there's various types of exemptions around that, but at, are, these, are these mandates any different from past mandates? Hugely, hugely. <laughs> and it's, a, I mean, first of all, there've never been vaccine mandates for such new vaccines. Um, Vac vaccines that are mandated are typically, you know, have been tested for decades. Uh, these vaccines, once they started being mandated before they'd even been around a year, and certainly before they'd been tested, you know, or used widely on a population. Um, another difference is that it's for a disease that doesn't pose a risk to most people under 70. Um, so you're mandating a vaccine for people who don't really face a risk from the virus itself. and. I mean, mandates in the past were very narrow. Okay, we have some for school children, and then maybe you get a yellow vac fever vaccine if you get a 
Zimbabwe or something, but to sort of uh, these employee, widespread employer mandates uh, to get in many cities, as I'm sure you're well aware, living in New York, for a while you had to show a vaccine card to go to a restaurant or a theater. Um, we've never had that before, never. So this sort of a, such broad mandates that affect so many people and with such a new vaccine um, is totally unprecedented. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, because this was a common response. Hey, hey vaccines have <laughs> always been mandated, right? Yeah, and it, so it takes it often would take a bit of research for someone to 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 figure out how to how to talk about these things. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's. I mean, we'll see. I don't. You know, I think the jury's still out on exactly how dangerous these vaccines are. We know they have side effects. We know they're causing myocarditis in young men. They're having effects on women's reproductive uh, cycles. We know that. Um, we don't know the long-term effects. Um, we don't know the effects of giving boosters, endless boosters. Uh, it looks as though that may actually have a, a sort of negative effect, especially after too many. There was a study from Israel showing that I think uh, fourth booster, you started to actually have less immunity. <laughs> so, um, you know, and it's funny, I don't know if you saw this clip, I tweeted it. There are 60 Minutes had interviewed uh, Fauci in 1999 about the AIDS vaccine, a potential AIDS vaccine. And he said something like, you wouldn't want to uh, mandate it, you know, or you wouldn't want to mass vaccinate the population because it might look fine after a year, it might look fine after two years, but then maybe 12 years, you start, start to see side effects manifest. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something we've always understood, that, that side effects can take time to manifest. If you take it and then a year goes by and everybody's fine, then you say, okay, that's good. Now let's give it to uh, 500 people. And then a year goes by and everything's fine. You say, well, then now let's give it to thousands of people. And then you find out that it takes 12 years for all hell to break loose. And then what have you done? So, you know, and a lot, I think these, the vaccines that are in use in the U.S. are all still emergency use authorization, actually. It's right? a complicated question. Yeah. <laughs> there, uh, the Pfizer and Moderna now have ones that have been fully approved. So emergency use authorization is typically um, for treatments that haven't been fully approved by the FDA, but so people can get them. And it was really about patient empowerment, right? Like if you're dying of cancer and there's some experimental treatment, um, we don't want to prevent you from getting that if it's your last hope. But weirdly, this was used in the opposite, you know, to force people to get this vaccine. Well, well it's a UA approved, now you have to get it. Um, there's a weird twist to it, which is that both in the case of Pfizer and Moderna, the vaccines that are the exact brand, or I don't know what you call it, is that's approved is not the one that's in distribution. So with Pfizer, the community is fully approved, but it's the BioNTech they're using. Um, the community is not widely available for distribution for some reason. There are conspiracy theories, or there are theories, I shouldn't, I shouldn't dismiss them as conspiracy theories, about why that is maybe having to do with liability. And it's unclear whether they're exactly the same or not. Um, the, the fact sheet says that they're legally distinct formulaically the same, but apparently that could involve different inactive ingredients, which can affect the safety and efficacy. So we're not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, no, and this is, and just so many complications, right? Every, yeah. Everything, it's almost like this fog of, fog of com complication that prevents you from being able to just kind of sit down and make good decisions for yourself. That's, yes, that's absolutely right. And, and people just, I mean, I think people understandably don't think that they're getting accurate information because there's been such a campaign to 
uh, who was that? Anish Jha just said the other day, the COVID SAR in the White House, the vaccines have no adverse effects. That's absolutely ridiculous. All vaccines, all medical products carry some risk of adverse effects. And we know that people have had adverse effects from these. Now, whether that outweighs the cost, you know, the, the benefit or risk analysis for anybody or any particular person that we don't know, that doesn't mean that nobody should get them. But to claim that, that there are no adverse effects at all is a lie. That's misinformation. <laughs> I would not call myself right wing. <laughs> I don't know how to define myself, I guess. <laughs> well, no, the, I, I'm, of course, yeah. joking, right? <laughs> when I say this, but but that's it seems like everyone who takes this uh, a position that's not the main, uh, apparent mainstream position is called uh, a right wing person. Now, yeah, right. Yep. Uh, and that's another <laughs> insidious tactic that's sort of used to discredit people. They sort of put something before your name. So Coke funded, right wing conspiracy theorist. And then when some people Google you, that's what they see. And then you are automatically dismissed. And it's highly effective. I actually noticed it. I Googled um, somebody the other day who's on our side of things. What they put before his name was something like, Trump uh, defender, conspiracy theorist, whatever. And I had a moment where I was like, oh, this person's not credible. And then I was like, no, I'm just falling for this. They do the same thing to me, <laughs> to so many people I know. But it's highly effective. And it's, again, a way of discrediting you and um, making sure the public doesn't take you seriously without having to engage with your views at all. I feel like there's some kind of Rubicon that's been crossed with these new CDC guidelines, which, you know, I would argue most of which, you know, were were known a couple of years yeah. ago, right? And then also, of course, Dr. Fauci resigning. I don't think it's by accident that it's happening now. Yeah. Um, I guess the question is, do you think there is some shift? Are you seeing any sense of a shift in the way the information is being, uh, you know, narrated in the in the mainstream, so to speak? No. <laughs> I mean, this doesn't make me hopeful at all. First of all, there's mm -hmm. been the CDC has not said, you know, we made a mistake um, or we should have listened to doctors cool cool and Bhattacharya. They're just pretending, you know, they're doing this sort of about face. But of course, if they were pressed on it, they would say, oh, no, it's just with the, the vaccines and the, you know, the variants aren't as bad. And that's why we can go back to normal life. And that's why we don't need mandates and masks. Um, I mean, other than the acknowledgement of natural immunity, I, that's, a, you know, a little bit hopeful. But I don't, I think the fact that they haven't had to account for their lies and deceit of the American public is really troubling. Um, there's also, frankly, Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director, has been talking about how the reason the CDC went wrong is because they didn't do enough. They didn't lock people down harder. <laughs> she didn't use those words, but that's reading between the lines, that they should have really consolidated their power and done more, which they already abused. Uh, I mean, the CDC does not have rulemaking authority delegated by Congress, yet the CDC did, you know, the eviction moratorium, the federal mask mandate, um, they don't have this authority, yet they just did it. It was a complete abuse. And I, unless there's a real change, I'm afraid it's just going to happen again. What do you think that change would need to be? Um, well, I think courts need to start recognizing that the CDC doesn't have this power. Now, part of the problem, so the CDC eviction moratorium, or I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, where the CDC basically said landlords couldn't evict people during COVID because it would spread COVID. Um, 
I mean, this sounds really nice and warm and fuzzy, but a lot of landlords are mom and pop landlords. Um, this really harmed a lot of people who are lower middle class. Um, not, you know, that we're not talking all about <laughs> really rich landlords. And then the there were people who, like lawyers and doctors, uh, who were like, "Oh, I don't have to pay my rent. I can just, uh, you know, go to Abu Dhabi and <laughs> have a nice trip um, on that money." And also, the CDC simply doesn't have the authority to do this. And it's really important for separation of powers reasons that agencies don't just run amok and start making laws that they don't have the authority to make. So what happened was people sued. We sued, actually, before I joined, but my organization. Um, it ended up going up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, you, the CDC can't do this. But they did it. For, they got away with it for like a year and a half because that's how long it takes the court case to go on. Someone said something at some point like, yeah, we know we can't really do this, but we're just going to do it until the court tells us we can't. I mean, that is unconscionable for government officials to say that they're sort of abusing the system and abusing separation of powers. Um, I, I mean, courts, there has to be some accountability and I don't exactly know what it looks like, but... I remember seeing a tweet from you at some point where you had put up a screenshot of uh, how long, I think it was the CDC or possibly HHS, was uh, going to take to get you your FOIA uh, yeah, request yeah, right, yeah. on something that, you know, you would kind of need pretty quickly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you remember what I'm I talking do, about. I do, yes. Uh, that was, so that was, we have a FOIA request pending. This is sort of related to the uh, lawsuit in Ohio, mm -hmm. the Cengizi lawsuit. We asked for documents related to this and specifically for their names to see if they had been targeted um, and also just uh, correspondence between the government and Twitter um, to see what had gone on there. So they, they, we made the FOIA request and they said it might take two years. Well, they have like 20 days to respond. They can ask for another 10 days for complex requests. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is just, to I mean, you're just violating our statutory FOIA rights and sort of being brazen about it. Um, we, so we sued. That lawsuit is, is pending. Um, but just so many lawsuits. Yeah, yeah. But they, they keep getting away with <laughs> As we kind of finish up, just tell me a little bit about your this organization that you're working for. Where did it, where did it come from? Yeah, so the New Civil Liberties Alliance, um, as you can tell from the name, we're sort of seeking to fill a gap that has been lashed by organizations like the ACLU. Um, uh, Philip Hamburger is the founder. He's a professor of law at Columbia University, and he identified a number of years ago this sort of problem of administrative agencies infringing on Americans' rights. And a lot of people don't even you know, realize how far it goes. So the SEC, for instance, has a lot of proceedings where the Constitution gives you a right to a jury trial um, in criminal cases. And you know, the idea is if you're going to suffer severe adverse consequences, you get a jury, not one judge. Um, they have these administrative proceedings where you don't get a hearing, but you can lose your entire livelihood, um, your entire savings, uh, and it's it's tried by a judge in the SEC. So that, you know, they're all within the agency. There are just various other ways in which agencies exploit uh, the power that they have, and. And so COVID kind of made that writ large, I would say. We really, a lot of us who, uh, I hadn't realized this before. And when I looked at it, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I really like what they, the organization is doing. And I think we've been sort of at the forefront for this reason, uh, challenging a lot of these, um, these, I don't even know what you call them, rules, laws, mandates. <laughs> They're not supposed to be anything. Given the reality you just described, what do you think, um, 
like-minded individuals should be doing at this point? Well, that's a good question. I mean, writing, speaking, talking to the people around them. Um, I mean, one way of putting it that I, you know, have sort of thought of is, and I, I see this from a lot of my friends and relatives on the left, is that they want their policies in place and they don't really care how it gets there, you know, whether it's abortion or climate change. Um, that's the wrong way of looking at it, in my opinion. The fundamental principles we have for free speech, for separation of powers, those are more important than any particular policy. That's what makes us America, and that's what's supposed to bring us together. And so that's actually caused me to reassess uh, a lot of my ideas about things. And I've sort of, you know, there were points where I would have actually advocated for that. I wanted my policy in place. I would have been okay with um, whatever it took to get there. And now I've sort of realized that that's, that's wrong. Mm. Um, the most important principle, the most important thing is to maintain the principles that are intrinsic to our constitution. And so I think that's an important message to get out. And so what's next for Janine Yunus? <laughs> well, I'm sure the government will keep me busy. So, um, I mean, right now I'm really busy with these, uh, these censorship cases. And uh, unfortunately, colleges, I'm getting a lot of letters from college students or emails from college students um, about the booster mandates. So I might be uh, doing some of that. I'm actually was contacted by the family of a 19 year old kid at MSU who had uh, got the two doses of Pfizer last fall because he had to to go to school uh, as a freshman, uh, got a blood clot in his leg two months later. So we don't know, you know, I don't want to jump to conclusions could have been caused by the vaccine, maybe not had been healthy with no health, you know, no health problems prior to that. Um, he got an exemption for the booster mandate for the spring semester, but now they won't let him onto campus or take his classes unless he gets the booster, which is absolutely absurd. Um, so there are just these sorts of scenarios. Well, and just not to belabor this, but even under this new CDC guidance? Yeah. Um, MSU has said that they're not planning to change, which is, so this, this makes for some, for the lawyers out there, this makes for some good lawsuits because that since the judge is one of the bases for finding against us has been, well, we can't say the CDC recommendations are irrational. Well, now it's not the CDC recommendations. So what are you going to fall back on? So um, there should be some lawsuits forthcoming. And <laughs> if these universities want to keep this up and keep oppressing these young people like this. Well, Janine Younes, such a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you all for joining Janine Younes and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.